You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Rewilding Earth podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Kirk Robinson is the founder and executive director of the Western Wildlife Conservancy, and he lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Prior to founding Western Wildlife Conservancy, Kirk earned a Ph.D. in philosophy and taught courses at universities in Montana and Utah for 15 years. We start at the top today with Kirk defining the North American model of wildlife management and the reasons why it needs a complete overhaul. State wildlife management agencies claim to be managing wildlife according to something known as the North American model. And this model was first articulated in 2001. And what we need to do is examine this model and see how closely management policy accords with it, for one thing. And secondly, we need to critique the model to determine whether or not it's a good model. Um, The model basically has seven principles or tenets. Sometimes they're called the seven sisters. To begin with, we have wildlife as a public trust resource. It's usually listed as the first principle. And second, elimination of markets for game. Third, allocation of wildlife by law. Fourth, wildlife may be killed only for a legitimate purpose. Five, wildlife is an international resource. Six, science is the proper tool for discharging wildlife policy. And seven, democracy of hunting. Uh, so this this model purports to describe how and why wildlife is governed the way it is in North America. And it tends to serve also as a, a self-serving justification for wildlife agency policy and practice. So it, we really need to look into it and and see what it's all about. Number four really sets off an awful lot of alarms for me. Wildlife may be killed only for legitimate purpose. If that doesn't leave room for interpretation, I don't know what does. There are some other things in those tenets that, that leave it wide open, but boy, does number four really do the trick. I don't know what, what anybody would define as a legitimate purpose. State to state, if you read the news on um, how on the ground they're de- determining that, it just... Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's too wishy-washy, right? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, um, what counts as a legitimate uh, purpose is not defined. And uh, it's left to state wildlife management agencies to decide what counts. And a lot of it is rooted in tradition. So, for instance, uh, black bear hunting, which is happening, uh, which is being discussed right now in Utah for the next uh, season is a tradition. And by virtue of that very fact, a lot of people, particularly the hunters themselves and the wildlife management agencies, regarded it as legitimate. It has already been legitimized. But the thing that's problematic about this is it does not invoke any consideration whatsoever of ethics. Now, that's just one example, but I think the message is. What counts as legitimate is never really discussed 
it's in the end it's really whatever the wildlife management agencies uh and the um wildlife commissions of the various states decide it is yeah plus tradition is just peer pressure from dead people so that really it's weird how high we raise that on a platform in this country and now all over the world it's done to justify how we deal with wildlife, um, how we manage our lands, this tradition thing. So, for instance, you might think that wasting wildlife is not legitimate, just killing it and letting it rot. They ought to use the, the body of the animal for some useful purpose, some good purpose. Uh, that seems reasonable to a lot of people. But then what about uh, killing animals merely for trophy? taking the antlers, for instance, is that legitimate? Or what about killing coyotes for no reason at all, except to see them die? Is that legitimate? So yes, there's a big room full of questions here that we could address if we wanted to take the time. Well, so you had some ideas on some of these other of the seven tenets. Why don't you continue with those? Well, I want to talk for a moment about number one, wildlife is a public trust resource. Let's focus, first of all, on the word resource and what it connotes. It connotes something like um, materials for us humans to use to serve our various interests and purposes. Uh, Right away, we see that the perspective of the North American model is one of wildlife as basically comparable to trees um, and minerals. Now, a lot of people these days (laughs) don't take that view of other living creatures, that they're merely a resource for our use. But um, besides that, there are these words public trust. The idea is that state that wildlife within a state is to be managed for the public at large in, as a trust. So, you know, right away in the North American model, we have something that actually sounds very positive. The question will be whether or not state wildlife management agencies and and the wildlife commissions actually do manage wildlife as a public trust. And I would argue that in some respects they do and in other respects they don't. You know, for example, I think it's important to realize that the way wildlife is actually managed in the states is could be described as a farm model where some species are the ones that are favored and others are disfavored. And a big part of the management policy is to um, reduce the number of favored ones and increase the num- pardon me, reduce the number of disfavored species and increase the number of favored species. And of course, the favored species uh, are deer and elk, uh, mountain sheep and the like. And, and the disfavored species are the ones that prey on the species. So we have uh, wildlife management on a farm model rather than an ecological model that recognizes the mutual interactions among all species and all all components of an ecosystem and their important roles. Um, In the case of large carnivores like wolves and mountain lions, I think it's not at all misleading to characterize them as like an immune system and the ecosystem or the land itself as an organism. And the immune system's job is to keep the organism healthy. And it does this by removing weaker animals, for example, and by allowing um, a proper balance between vegetation and herbivores and carnivores, etc. But wildlife management is not really conducted that way. 
On the other hand, there are species that are uh, protected by both the federal government and the states, examples being the sage grouse, which has a degree of protection, although many people are trying to remove it. So we have to somehow find a way of making wildlife governance, which is a little different from management per se, make it more ecologically sound. We also need to make it better representative of the citizens. So that represents a true cross-section of the public. As it is now, it serves mainly hunters and to some extent ranching interests. And that's very clear when you read through the elements of the North American model. Uh, one example being democracy of hunting. It's mentioned explicitly. But there are other people in, in society who don't hunt and they have other interests yet they are not well represented, represented by wildlife commission. It's just kind of strange that hunting is uh, the only interest that's represented at all in the seven tenets. There's not birding. There's not, it's just, it's very, very clear what the North American model is all about, who started it, <laughs> um, who came yeah. up with it. And and this is where the problems stem from, right? I mean, we, you know, you don't have to follow really hardcore news sources for how, um, you know, wildlife is managed in this country. State by state, you, you'll see outrages every day on Twitter or wherever you follow the news. Project Coyote does a really good job. Several organizations like yours as well do a really good job of monitoring and watching what's going on and reporting on it. And people are outraged. And I think people are starting to see if you've never gone through these tenets and seen that number seven is the democracy of hunting, that one out of seven things on this list, none of the other things that we could do, uh, including staying in the city and just appreciating the fact that wilderness is out there. That's another interest. You don't have to have a direct, <laughs> you know, approach. It's your stuff. It's for the public. All of it. All of biodiversity is. So I just right. think that. That was a really good way to point out just how, how one-sided this well, really is. Well, I think you're exactly right, Jack. And let's talk a little bit more about it. The democracy of hunting is not really explained. Uh, I can think of two things that it could mean and probably is meant to mean. And one is that uh, everybody should, who wants to should be able to hunt. Whether you're very wealthy or quite poor, you ought to be able to hunt. There shouldn't be uh, any reason why you can't hunt if you can find the means and the time. But the other thing I think it means is that non-hunters should have equal representation on wildlife commissions and wildlife boards uh, along with the hunters. Mm -hmm. And yet that isn't the case. And not only isn't that the case, but we know that most hunters are male, white male, and most wildlife commissions consist exclusively of white males. And so there isn't even uh, proper representation of uh, minorities on the board. The people all come from a hunting and or agriculture background. And so naturally they want to uh, preserve the status quo, which serves them. And it's very hard to break through that because all of the various interests, hunting and everything that goes with hunting, such as uh, sales of armament, you know, of weapons and ammunition, and clothing and uh, taxidermists and hunters, outfitters, guides, everything, they're all tied together 
economically, at least they believe they are. So nobody is willing to break ranks to allow anybody have any uh, real influence on determining hunting policy. So we get the rest of us get excluded, even though we are by far the majority. Non-hunters are uh, um, are the majority by many times. Of course, the, the thing that many of these people fear is that if we have equal or greater influence on hunting policy, that we'll try to get rid of hunting. Um, and some people probably would like to do that, but I don't think that most people would. I think most citizens would be would would be willing to accept at least having a voice that's meaningful. It's even worse than just diversity among the people on these commissions and boards because you've had a hard go of it as a white male. It's an ideology that is being protected more than anything, I think. I think it's, I think it's just what you said. They're afraid that we're going to mess with their hunting, their tradition, all this stuff, and they've set up this thing to look as if they're being responsible land managers, North American model of wildlife conservation. We have tenants. We have pillars. We have sisters. We, we're really serious. But what we're really, really doing is going, we're going to exclude everyone that doesn't subscribe to our ideology of what we want to use the public lands for. It's not like you can just march into one of these things and say, I want to be, a, I want to be on this commission. It's not that easy for you, is it? Well, no, and I and I don't want to be one of the, on one of the commissions either, frankly, because uh, I'd spend all my time trying to fight the other six commissioners, and I'd never succeed. Uh, there needs to be a true balance on the commissions, and um, a lot's going to have to change before that that actually happens. Meanwhile, I'm happy to be a crit a critic of the whole thing. I think that's my proper role, but you're right. I've had a hard time uh, having any influence here in Utah. Um, and I've been trying for 30 years going to, uh, we have a wildlife board. It's called a wildlife board, not a commission, but it's the same thing. And I've gone to meetings over the course of 30 years and tried to make a difference. And I can't really honestly say I've made any difference at all on anything. But interestingly, they're happy to have my involvement because it gives them cover for uh, being able to say, well, you know, we're, we're not exclusive. We try to include other people with other points of view, but they just don't want to get involved. There really has to be, be a, a global change in values through society so that society itself can uh, change the status quo. But that means, of course, changing the way wildlife is governed and managed. And you're right, that is a big threat to these people because of the ideology they hold and the various interests that they have vested in the status quo. So it's not going to happen easily, but there are signs across the country that it's there's a movement taking shape. And especially as hunting declines in popularity, I think that we'll see a time when uh, there is the needed change. I just wish it was faster because we've been talking about, well, you've been talking about it for 30 years and other people have been talking about it for even longer than that. And my goodness, that is far too slow <laughs> for any meaningful thing that we need to have done these days. I mean, the protection of biodiversity is paramount and 
um, that should replace number seven on this list. The protection of biodiversity should replace the democracy of hunting. That doesn't preclude hunting. That doesn't say hunting doesn't take place. No. But the protection of biodiversity is an umbrella, in my mind, that encompasses everything so that we don't have to list out mountain biking and, and, um, and all the other interests, photography, hiking, uh, backpacking, long distance hikers. You don't have to make all those lists if you're protecting it for biodiversity. Because everybody still, you could put even another tenant in that says it does, also doesn't mean we're going to put a great big wall around everything and nobody can get in or do anything if people get really weirded out by that. But, um, and I do see the cracks forming and it's really nice. And it might be because I'm in a bubble, we get into bubbles, right? And so I don't always see the other side unless somebody uh, brings up and says, these guys just wrote an article here in this hunting magazine that's pretty rattled in its ideology about (laughs) how things ought to be managed. And, um, And they do get kind of tunnel vision there. I mean, there are people who really care about elk in a really weird way in the way that it means to them as hunters. And it seems to me when you look at that, you look at the issues with elk and the wasting disease and, and all the things that are coming up now in the news, I don't understand how those guys don't see that they're shooting themselves in the foot. That the way that they're doing the management and the way they hate wolves and they hate you know, all of these other things that they feel are taking away from their experience as hunters, the populations that they have to go after, the health of the population. And in their management, we're dealing I mean, under their watch, we're dealing with this chronic wasting. I think that's an important uh, topic. Remember my point about the land being an organism and uh, large carnivores being an immune system for the organism. They help to keep it healthy. Mm -hmm. And one way they do that is uh, the large carnivores, unsurprisingly, are able to to detect uh, weaker animals, which naturally they are going to go after. preferentially because they don't want to get kicked in the head by a healthy bull elk, uh, for example. So they'd rather take one that's easier to, to kill. They have the ability to do that in, in ways that we don't. Their senses are tuned in to things that we do not perceive. Um, it's a result of the evolutionary dance between predator and prey over the eons. But why not let them do the job then, the job that they were honed to do. Right now, there have been many articles in Mountain Journal, Journal, for example, about the chronic wasting disease sweeping in towards Yellowstone National Park. Uh, There are 12 elk herds that spend part of their year inside Yellowstone National Park. And um, in the fall, they migrate out of the park down the major river drainages into the lower elevations for the winter. But Wyoming has 20 some odd elk feedlots in the northwest corner of northwest corner of the state not far from Yellowstone and this is where the elk many of the elk uh, congregate in the winter and those feedlots are uh, hothouses for the spread of disease like chronic wasting disease so why are they there well to serve the interests of hunters and ranchers hunters think well if we feed the elk in the winter, then there'll be more out for us to hunt in the, in, during elk season. The, the outfitters and guides will make more money, etc. And the ranchers like it because it keeps them out of their hay fields. Uh, but look at the looming disaster that's coming and what it will do to the 
ecology and economy of Yellowstone National Park into the economy of the gateway communities if uh, chronic wasting disease decimates the elk herds there. Things really will go haywire. And yet we see uh, obstinate resistance on the part of the state of Wyoming towards doing anything about this problem, even though they recognize that it's there. Instead, they'll come up with some strange programs that they hope will mitigate the problem to some extent, maybe uh, asking hunters to go out and uh, target uh, cow elk, for instance, uh, to reduce the population so that the disease, the disease won't spread so rapidly. Uh, but why not lay off the wolves and the cougars instead <laughs> and yeah. end the feedlots and let nature take its course? You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. Did you know we also publish insightful and inspirational content from leading rewilding scholars, poets, artists, and organizers from around the world? You can visit rewilding.org and sign up for our weekly digest to receive brilliant, fresh insights on everything rewilding. You'll find over a decade of articles and news from the front lines of wildlands protection and all kinds of restoration efforts. Check us out at rewilding.org, and don't forget to share it with friends. In, in every- so much smarter. Yeah, in every case here, as you pointed out, feedlots, that's, that's welfare for wildlife. Uh, I mean, those guys hate welfare programs. They say it all the time. They don't like socialism. And then they've got a great big batch of it going on with wildlife in that corner of Wyoming. Uh, and every instance that you mentioned that, that, that man dips his hand into this situation, it's screwing things up. And the only one that is perfect at doing the job they actually want done and they keep trying to do why muscling the wolves out is to let the wolves in and let nature do what it was designed to do over millions of years. And these guys that come along that have only been around and only had guns and hunting in the modern era for a tiny little blip of geologic time think they know better. And I guess I feel like the tide is turning because our ability to reach more and more people increases by the day. And that means that we are able to take what they're doing. I'm watching the chronic wasting thing very closely, and I'm watching the numbers of people who are being um, informed by this, people who would never get involved in issues like this or even hear about it. There are people who are learning about chronic wasting disease and what it means, and they're becoming outraged. And it's a brand new voice against the things that you've outlined here. And, and a need for change is coming that, just because these guys have it locked down, the, number, the kinds of people that they have on these boards and commissions, and that they've traditionally always been in charge of this stuff, doesn't mean that they will continue to be. And I think that public outcry that's coming because this stuff is so outrageous and it's so easy to see who the bad guy is. It's, it's not hard at all. Um, and who's messing up? And since they forced everybody else out or kept everyone else out, I really want to emphasize that this is done on their watch. They haven't let anybody be involved to blame it on other than themselves. So I, I get a little hope from that. Do you? Yeah, I, I really do because uh, it is becoming uh, widely known. And the disease is showing up all over the place around Yellowstone. It's in parts of Utah now as well. And there have been studies showing that for instance, in the case of uh, mountain lions, there was a study done in Colorado some years ago that showed that they pre preferentially select uh, elk that have the disease. They're able to detect it, and it's safer to take those animals than healthy animals, so they, cougars will hone in on them. 
you know, this raises another question about one of the tenants that we haven't discussed so far. It's number six, science is the proper tool for discharging wildlife policy. You know, that's a very interesting statement, the proper tool. How do we or should we use science to discharge wildlife policy? For that matter, how should we use it to form wildlife policy? What is the role of science in it all? I mentioned earlier the distinction between the farm model and the ecological model. It seems to me that if wildlife governance and management were managed according to the best science of the day, they would recognize the truths of ecology. And they would see that the, that uh, eco ecological science and evolutionary theory are the proper sciences for telling us how to manage wildlife. Um, but in fact, what I see is science being used to justify certain ends. For example, how is science used in managing deer? Well, wildlife managers can't do very much about the weather or the vegetation, but they want to boost deer herds because it's a primary source of income to the agencies. And a lot of people want to hunt deer. So they put their minds to work and they come up with, well, we need to kill more animals that kill deer. Uh, and that means cougars and bears and, and coyotes. And so let's focus on doing that and hope that it helps boost the number of deer. And they use science to help them do all of that. But I would say that's uh, really a prostitution of science. It's not, it's not um, using science properly. It sounds good if you just read it really quickly. Science is the proper tool for discharging wildlife policy. To me, that's, that sits off all kinds of triggers like, ooh, science, yeah, okay. But then you get deeper and you realize the reason that that's so cool to them is that they can go out and get their own scientists. And I quote scientists, you know, and when you say prostitution, you go and get somebody yeah. who's more political than science, scientist, and then they will say what you need them to say. And they, they even know how to make it look sciencey so that nobody will give you any hassle except for all these groups that read that stuff and hassle them over it all the time. People like you <laughs> who read this stuff and go, that's not actually science, but you're fooling everybody else, which is enough to keep doing it the way you're doing it. Yes, I, I might um, rephrase one part of it slightly. I think it is science, but it's science in, in the service of the wrong ends. What we have to remember is you cannot use science to do anything without a certain set of values that tell you what, what you uh, should or think you should do. Uh, so values are a big part of this, and this gets back to ideology. Ideology is always value-laden. So, you know, the wildlife managers uh, typically want to reduce the number of carnivores, never mind any ecological ramifications, uh, because they believe, and I think wrongly in most cases, that it will boost uh, the number of ungulates for hunters because that's where their values lie. So science is prostituted because it's put in the service of these values. What we need are different values. We need to be able to value uh, ecosystems in their own right as having an intrinsic value and uh, moral standing. They should be respected. We should try to protect them and protect the, the biodiversity within them, not because we're going to use them as a resource, but because that, that it's just the right thing to do. And um, as a matter of fact, it will save us all a lot of grief too, as we were, we were beginning to find out with problems like chronic wasting disease. 
that's already here. And I want to mention one other example in this connection. It's the so-called uh, wild horses. I would prefer to call them feral horses. They're not truly wild, and they're not really modern horses are not native to North America. But we do have these horse herds in the West. There are quite a few of them in Utah and New Mexico and Wyoming and other places. And um, the Bureau of Land Management manages most of the lands where these horses are. And also that's where a lot of ranchers' grazing allotments are. And um, they complain mightily about the wild horses taking the, the forage and the water that their cattle could otherwise use. And sometimes they even throw in some of the other species like uh, pronghorn. Uh, they're being shorted by the presence of these wild feral horses. Well, this is a huge controversy. It's gone on a long time. No solution has been found. Should we round them up and kill them? Should we round them up and try to find them foster homes, let them be adopted? Should we dart them and, uh, with some kind of chemical so that, uh, they can't, uh, so that the females can't conceive a foal? Uh, what should we do? And no matter what ideas has been proposed so far, it's, it's got a lot of problems. But you know what? Mountain lions will kill horses, especially the great big toms, if they have a chance. And I've talked to people who even observed it happen. They'll kill the younger horses typically, but they can have an impact. And horses, of course, know this, so they stay away from the places where they're vulnerable. They spend as little time as possible in places where they could be ambushed by a, a mountain lion. What if we also had wolf packs in the lowlands? They're a coursing predator, whereas a mountain lion, of course, is an ambush predator. That would put the squeeze on the wild horses or federal horses. And it stands to reason that it would help to control their numbers. Yet, do you hear anybody in government anywhere talking about this idea? Not at all. No. The only people that talk about it are people like me and you who are not beholden to any special interests like the ranching industry or the hunters who think that if there are wolves and mountain lions, it will spoil their chances of getting a trophy bighorn sheep or elk. Well, now, Kirk, you know that that the big deal is that you and I make so much money doing what we do. That's our special interest is just the, <laughs> the, the skids of money that get delivered to us every day to have this uh, opinion and put it out there. <laughs> Biodiversity is in our pocket. And uh, there's, yeah. I think what's going to have to happen because there's some hubris on the other side that they think they'll be in charge of all of this. And perpetuity. And of course, that could be true if something doesn't really change much more radically than it has in the past, because every attack on this, as they see it, an attack on their sovereignty in wildlife management has been thwarted by them thus far. And they've used special yeah. interests, uh, gun companies and, and all kinds of companies that are aligned with their ideology to um, get the funding to even help with this. They've even run commercials. They've done all kinds of things that we really can't do because we don't have, there's no such thing as big biodiversity. There's not a great big company out there that's funding us. And so I think what's going to have to happen is that the public, the groundswell is going to need to continue until such time that we can actually say, look, we tried it your way. And these are going to have, this is going to have to come from governors, right? Governors of each state. And those are elected officials. And there's a governor that just got elected in New Mexico that's making some serious changes with how things are going. I can't believe they still have trapping, that that's even an issue, but it's, a, it's, it's probably its days are very, very numbered because of the groundswell and because of elections. And 
I don't think these guys are going to go quietly. And I think that it's just time, you know, to do that. I think one of the solutions, and it's, it's not our fault because there's, there's nothing really else that we can do is we have to elect governors that are going to wipe the commissions and the boards clean and start over and say, look, these biologists over here are saying that you guys are working too hard. You don't need to go out and cull herds and feed them and spend all this money feeding elk and all this stuff. If you would just let nature back in to do its job, let the mountain lions and the wolves and all of the things that this, that, 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 you know, for the Christians out there that God designed everything to be exactly this way. Why are you putting your hands on all of this stuff? In any case, we're going to wipe the board. You guys are done. We're going to bring in a balanced uh, commission and we're really going to listen to actual good science that that hasn't been done. And if it fails, you guys can all come back on the board, you know, uh, or whatever. But I don't think they're going to go quietly. It's going to have to be a it's going to have to be a big movement. Well, in that connection, I just want to mention that some of us have actually started to lay the groundwork for a national movement to transform uh, a re-envision state wildlife governance and. We had our first meeting in August of 2018 in Albuquerque, and um, we've got a huge email list now. We've seen interest in half the states in the nation so far among wildlife advocates and activists. It's going to have to find its own feet. There's no one person that can commandeer this and and guide it, uh, but I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to continue to grow, but there is one other thing that I think we need to consider here, and that is funding. And I want to make two points in this connection. Defenders of state wildlife management, as it typically exists, and uh, champions of the North American model, like to say that hunters are the ones that pay for wildlife management. Therefore, they should have a right to say how it's managed. Well, that is not true in its categorical form, the way I've stated it. They always leave out the fact that the state, pardon me, the federal agencies such as the Bureau of Land Management and the Forest Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service have had a big hand in um, managing wildlife and the habitats that wildlife uh, live in. And those agencies are supported by all taxpayers. Another thing, uh, there are a lot of NGOs who had a big influence on uh, conserving wildlife in North America. I think, for example, of the Wildlife Society, the Society for Conservation Biology, the Audubon Society, Defenders of Wildlife, the Center for Biological Diversity. These people put a lot of time and money into conservation efforts. So the idea that hunters alone are somehow responsible for uh, protecting and conserving wildlife is totally erroneous. And somehow we need to get the word out about that. And in addition, I think we need to come up with other ways of helping to fund wildlife management on the state level. It can't all be by, you know, funded by um, excise taxes on hunting and fishing equipment or by uh, license purchases. This is a big problem, um, but just as a practical matter, I don't think we will fully succeed in transforming state wildlife management unless we can come up with some workable solutions on that score. Not to leave out biz- businesses, um, not all businesses share the same ideology. And there are, pl- there are uh, businesses yeah. like REI and Patagonia. Patagonia supports our work here and the work of many, many, many NGOs. Among them are 
are the NGOs you're talking about. So, you yeah. know, where, where does the NGO get their money? Well, from regular people and also businesses. There's a great big campaign going on right now um, where Patagonia is taking $10 million and matching dollar for dollar every organization that they support, whatever comes in right now until the end of uh, the year. I love that you bring that point up because when people hear that, they tend to shut down. They're like, oh God, they're right, the hunters. And the only reason that people think they're right is because the hunters are so forthright about it. They're so confident. And the people who are saying it even believe it. Like they've been told and they haven't really looked at the facts. And uh, you know, they were told by an authoritative person that they follow, that they listen to, or an organization. And so they believe it too. I think a lot of the hunters truly, truly believe it when they say that hunting and fishing uh, money is really what supports all this stuff. So why do you think you have a voice? And it's worked brilliantly over the last many decades. <laughs> and, uh, but it's not true. The main thing I would say, Jack, is for people to support their local NGO that's working on these issues. You know, because yeah. uh, the kind of movement I'm talking about isn't going to involve all interested citizens in the same way. Many of them, most of them will be members of organizations that work on these kinds of issues. So in New Mexico, for example, SWEC, Southwest Environmental Center, I think, anyway, in Las Cruces is one example. Well, and, and so if you want to get involved, just look around at who's trying to reach you. And people are trying to reach you. If you give to nonprofits, if you get newsletters um, from one or the other, um, you're, you're usually just one degree of separation from um, many, many other groups in your area. So I think one of the biggest ways that everybody can help are with all the issues that we talk about here on the show. Um, you probably have noticed there's a theme that just about every guest in the last 10 guests at least has brought this up, which is get involved with the groups who know. Um, get involved with those guys, whoever they are, so that in your area you are, you're really, if you're with one of those groups, you're attached to all the information on the subject. And you can do many, many things with that. You can volunteer. You can uh, help with alerts, um, action alerts when somebody needs to be called in D.C. Um, or at the state level, whatever it might be. Those groups are going to be the ones. That's your source of information. I, I always thought when I was really new at this, uh, on this topic that what we needed to do was get involved with the boards and the commissions. And you're the first person that I've ever had on that said, I don't want to do that because I'd just be wasting my time. There's too many, it would be me against the rest of the board. So that's not actually yeah. really an answer to me anymore. No, it, cer it certainly isn't in Utah. No, you'd be playing right into their game. Uh, what we need to do is change the uh, composition of the board first. How we do that is another, another matter, but in Utah, my group, Western Wildlife Conservancy, is interested in finding ways to do that. So if people want to get involved here, they should visit my website, westernwildlifeconservancy.org, and they can learn more there, and they can also find out how to contact me personally if they want to. You know, it's going to take more interest on the part of people, and I think they shouldn't just take my word for everything. Either they should get out and do some of their own research. And they should go to these wildlife commission meetings and see how they're actually run. Yeah. But I don't want to make it sound like this is going to be an easy thing at all. It's well, my new hope is, difficult. is that you guys come up with the model that uh, groups in other states can then uh, steal from you. And, and as quickly as possible, I hope you guys succeed at that. How to re uh, rejigger these boards, um, you know, kind of from the outside. I don't want to be on this board until it's, 
it's it works like this. It needs to be, yeah. yeah. I think that's one of the best answers that I've gotten uh, on this topic uh, is that do we fight from within the system that's set so strongly against us or do we change the system in some material way yeah. that makes it our participation mean something, worth something? Kirk, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to be on Rewilding Earth. I would love to have you back. It's been a lot of fun, and I hope people uh, learn something and do something to get involved to try to make a difference. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.